Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in fuels. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is John DeChico uh, from the University of Michigan. And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about a number of things, but the main thing is a study that John um, and his team uh, did last year on on uh, biofuels, um, and then we'll just uh, talk about some other topics related to that as we uh, as we get into the interview. Just a little bit about John before we get into the interview. John is a research professor at the University of Michigan Energy Institute, where his work examines transportation, energy use, and its associated climate mitigation challenges. His research addresses vehicle fuel systems petroleum demand, greenhouse gas emissions, and transportation energy policy. He also examines the social dimensions of energy and climate strategies, serving as the director of the University of Michigan Energy Survey. And I'll provide a link to that um, on the website for the post um, for this podcast. With that, John, I welcome you to the program. Thanks, Tammy. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So we'll get right into it. I have so many questions for you today. I think this interview could take all day, but I promise (laughs) it won't be that long. For the listeners who may not be aware, we'll just start here. Can you talk about you and your team's original analysis? The, The analysis was called Carbon Balance Effects of U.S. Biofuel Production and Use. What was the key premise and key findings in that analysis, and what motivated you and the team to undertake the study? So we'll just start there. We wanted to see what actually happened in terms of CO2 emissions as biofuel production ramped up under the RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standard. So we looked back at the period from 2005 to 2013. RFS-1 was passed in 2005, and in 2013, was the most recent year for which complete data were available when we started the study in late uh, 2014. A key premise was that we didn't want to make any unverified assumptions as we were looking back um, at what happened. In particular, you know, one of the most critical issues with biofuels is the notion that the CO2 emitted when you burn a biofuel you know, whether it's corn ethanol or soybean biodiesel or any other type of biofuel, whether the the CO2 that comes out when it's burned is balanced by the CO2 that plants take up through photosynthesis when they're grown. Now, most people assume that those two things, the input and output, so to speak, are automatically in balance. But that's just an assumption. A lot of people Uh, As the RFS ramped up, meaning other scientists, other parts of the scientific community were identifying, you know, lots of problems, unforeseen problems with respect to land use when biofuels, you know, were ramping up. And so what I had been doing for several previous years was taking a close look at the literature, doing some hard thinking, and essentially checking the math, checking the assumptions uh, in the computer models and homed in on this key assumption uh, regarding the the balance between the input and output, as I like to put it. Again, input is CO2 coming from the atmosphere into the landscape, into cropland as it grows crops, and then output is, of course, the emissions 
from the tailpipe and any processing emissions at, at refineries or uh, along the way. So that was really the premise, is let's just take a clean sheet of paper, look at what happened um, during this period where we had a, a very rapid expansion of biofuel production and use in the United States. What we found was that the input and output were not imbalanced. Uh, we found when we looked at cropland data and we used standard uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, crop harvest data, that there wasn't enough gain in the amount of carbon uh, being taken up by the crops to fully balance out the CO2 emitted when the biofuels are burned. And in the case of ethanol, there's also CO2 that emitted when it's uh, the ethanol is fermented, the beer bubbles, so to speak, uh, when you have fermenting corn mash at a biorefinery. So that was a pretty stunning finding for a lot of people. Uh, quantitatively, what we found is that the gain in carbon input during crop growth was enough to offset only 37% of the biofuel-related CO2 emissions over that 2005 to 2013 period. So when only 37% of those emissions are balanced out, as opposed to 100%, which is what everyone had been assuming when you assume that biofuels are inherently carbon neutral, uh, that's a huge change uh, in the analysis uh, right there. All of the computer modeling that had been done, both government-sponsored and as well as by other organizations and academics about this, just assumed that the input and output would always be imbalanced with respect to biofuels. And so when we went back and looked at field data and checked that assumption, we found out that that was not the case at all. And that very large change in the result, I mean, 37 minus 100, that's essentially a 63% shortfall, 63% less balancing out of the CO2 emissions than everyone was assuming in their computer models. That changed the result from making biofuels work better than gasoline to making them look worse in terms of their net impact on the atmosphere. So with that in, in mind, I want to ask you about a comment on the study that came from one of the ethanol industry's trade groups. So that's the Renewable Fuels Association. It's a little long, so bear with me, but I want to get your reaction to their reaction to, to the study and then ask you a couple questions. So here's, here's the comment. Here's what um, they had to say about this analysis. This is the same study, same flawed methodology, and same fallacious result that Professor DiCicco has churned out multiple times. He has been making these arguments for years, and for years they have been rejected by climate scientists regulatory bodies and governments around the world and reputable life cycle analysis experts. As crazy as it sounds, Professor DeChico is essentially suggesting that plants ultimately used for bioenergy don't absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as they grow. In other words, he and his sponsors at the API, which is for people who don't know, the American Petroleum Institute, he and his sponsors at the API are arguing that the scientific community's centuries-old understanding of photosynthesis and plant biology is wrong. DeChico's assertion that plants somehow emit more carbon when burned as fuel than they take in from the atmosphere during photosynthesis defies the most basic laws of plant physiology. 
Just like Professor DeChico's last study, this work was funded by the API, which obviously has a vested interest in obscuring and confusing accepted bioenergy carbon accounting practices. It's a bit like the tobacco industry funding a study that says bubblegum is worse for the human body than cigarettes. While it's flattering that API has taken such an interest in the climate benefits of biofuels, the public would be better served if the oil industry spent its time and money examining and owning up to the very real and very negative climate impacts of petroleum. So how do you react uh, to that statement? And can you talk about the reaction in general that you got when you published um, the study? They didn't pull any punches, did they? <laughs> I, I did see that, and of course, when it came out. Let me take some of that a piece at a time. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with this, you know, part about you know photosynthesis that I somehow uh, am uh, defying uh, the basic laws of plant uh, physiology. Well, no, our data, our cropland data that we got from the USDA, actually measures through by measuring the harvest the crop yield, how much biomass and therefore how much carbon the crop land has taken up from the atmosphere. So the results of photosynthesis, that, that's like the foundation, one of the foundations of our analysis. It's the foundation of how we analyze the input side of the equation. So to say we somehow are ignoring uh, photosynthesis and so on is uh, really you know, just a nonsensical objection. Now, going back to the beginning, the same study, you know, you said I've been churning this out uh, for many years. Well, not really. This, no one, uh, myself included, had published a study that quantified essentially the shortfall in this balance between input and output with biofuels ever before. So this is a, is a new study. What is true is that I have been critical of biofuels for a good number of years, not my whole career, but I would say by the early 2000s. Part of my background, if one digs deeper into my resume, you'll find that I, before I came back into academia in 2009, I was at the Environmental Defense Fund, a major green group, uh, where I was uh, one of their transportation uh, energy experts. And right in early 2002, when some of the first proposals were put on the table for a biofuel mandate in Congress, you know, in the wake of, of 9-11-2001, myself and other colleagues there were concerned about that because, you know, we felt that there were a lot of risks with respect to biofuels, uh, both risks habitat, water quality, air quality, and we were also unsure that the CO2 benefits were uh, nearly as large as those claimed by the biofuel proponents. So I actually wrote, along with a colleague there who's also subsequently back in academia and critical of biofuels, whose name is Tim Searchinger, uh, we wrote a brief memo opposing the biofuel mandate in 2002. So I will fess up <laughs> to being skeptical uh, of the claims of biofuels for many years in that regard. Uh, but that I, I make that point in part to then address this other allegation by the Renewable Fuels Association that my work, uh, because it's funded by the American Petroleum Institute, is uh, you know, not legitimate, that it's been distorted or something, distorted science uh, for the sake of uh, you know, making a, a you know, point. 
Well, my skepticism of biofuels long predates my accepting funding from API. So I, I made that point. And when we put this contract together, we were very careful. We worked with university lawyers uh, to make sure that the funder had no undue influence uh, on the results, uh, that we were free to come up with what, what we came up with through our analysis. Uh, and as I said, this study, while new, builds on several years of critical work, uh, theoretical publications uh, that I had uh, that were increasingly critical of biofuels and scrutinizing this assumption of carbon neutrality, the input versus output balance question. A key theoretical study that I published three years before in, in 2013, so before the API funding, uh, and that study was basically done without any specific external funding, was the, the basis for the analysis and did the theoretical work that you know, led to the questioning that I did. So uh, it's, a, shall we say, a strange bedfellow situation where you have someone who's been essentially uh, a scientist working on behalf of environmental protection for my whole career, teaming up for funding reasons with the American Petroleum Institute to tackle this particular question. So uh, I realize that that, uh, you know, gives some people an opening. But, you know, the, the criticisms that uh, RFA leveled at me here, as I said in the beginning, that somehow I ignoring photosynthesis, their, their criticisms really are, uh, as I said, nonsensical. So let me ask you this. I mean, because, I mean, it's, you know, RFA is not it alone in, I mean, it, 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 the arguments may be different, but the doubts about uh, or questions about your study, I mean, certainly RFA is not alone out there. I mean, your your views and, you know, this study and your views, um, you know, you realize, <laughs> to put it nicely, I mean, you're kind of swimming a little bit upstream <laughs> in the uh, in the LCA community. I mean, now there is kind of like this cottage. I mean, I don't know. When I was starting out in, um, in the, this business, and I'm not an LCA expert, there really wasn't much in the way of of LCA, it's kind of like its own cottage industry, and there are now, you know, uh, experts and consultants, and you know, all these things that, you know, they weren't there before. But let's just say that, you know, for the sake of this discussion in the LCA community, of which there now is one, you're a bit of a lone wolf out there. I'm sure, you know, I might not have been the first person to inform you <laughs> of that. I mean, there are lots of well-respected professionals, um, experts, scientists in this community, you know, whom I know and you know and I've worked with who are great, intelligent, smart people, you know, and they don't agree uh, with you. And so my first question in, in response to that is, um, you know, um, why are they – why are you right and they aren't? That's the first question. And the second question is, you know, um, maybe a little more personal. And it's like, what is that like to actually, uh, you know, be a bit of that lone wolf uh, out there? Sure. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, Tammy. This work is definitely out of the mainstream in terms of LCA. It's not out of the mainstream 
in terms of climate science, though, uh, in that regard. A lot of people working on climate science and uh, the carbon cycle have not looked that closely at the RFS. They're you know, in a, sort of a different part of the research world than people working on energy policy and fuels. So uh, one way to kind of look at what I did is I built, a, you know, in some sense, a, a bridge, a scientific bridge from the world of carbon cycle science, terrestrial ecology, over into the world of energy policy, where life cycle analysis uh, has become a very dominant paradigm. You know, as you said, 20-plus years ago, life cycle analysis was pretty new. Let me just you know, point, again, another historical note out that I, I sort of look at now with some irony. I was working on energy policy you know, for, well, longer than 25 years, and I was one of the first to embrace life cycle analysis as a good way to compare fuels. In fact, to my knowledge, the first um, academic paper that called for the use of life cycle analysis to compare transportation fuels was one that I co-wrote with a biofuel researcher named Lee Lin back in um, the mid-1990s, shortly after uh, argon study and model that led to what we now know as GREET, which is, for, for listeners who haven't heard of it, is uh, a greenhouse gas emissions and transportation tracking model that is uh, published by Argonne Laboratory, and which my results now contradict the GREET results. But 25 years ago, I thought that that was a good way to proceed, like a lot of uh, other people did. Uh, and, and as my own work you know, progressed over the years, and I'm not not totally alone in this. We determined, you know, that there were more and more limitations with the life cycle method, and then finally, you know, my work, you know, essentially deconstructed it and found some big flaws in this case, which you know relates to this whole carbon neutrality question. So, point I'm making here is that yes, the the life cycle community has really grown up, as you said, it's become a cottage industry. Uh, a lot of people have latched onto that. In fact, policymakers have latched onto that. It's uh, written into the RFS language by Congress. California has written a life cycle analysis uh, into the low carbon fuel standard. It's the basis for that. Other jurisdictions that are having renewable fuel policies all have some form of life cycle analysis as part of that policy. So what happened, though, is it's a case where policymakers latched onto this, I think, with good intentions. Um, the life cycle provisions put into the RFS, which were inserted when the RFS was expanded by the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007, or ISA, as we like to call it, uh, were advocated by uh, green groups and uh, backed you know, by work done by other scientists. So a consensus grew up around this paradigm even before the paradigm had actually been validated with field data, with real, say, fundamental empirical scientific work. It was all done on the basis of modeling. So it's a, in many ways a tragic situation uh, because lots of well-intended people have embraced this paradigm uh, because at a certain simple level, it sounds good, seems to make sense, even though, in my view, it's, it's, it's really the wrong way to analyze the situation. 
And as I said, when I, you know, when I, they're not involved in the energy policy world, but I certainly consulted with and talked to lots of, say, ecologists, terrestrial ecologists, and they have no problems with my work. It passed peer review in uh, the journal Climatic Change, which is a premier journal uh, on that on the subject. So what we have here is a situation of, say, two different scientific communities that didn't talk to each other that much, were mostly preoccupied with different things, now, in, in some sense, uh, colliding uh, on this issue. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation. It is a bit of a lonely quest, but, um, you know, I'm not alone in the scientific community. Certainly in the life cycle community, I'm very much an outlier. But as I said, there's other scientists for whom this work that I've done is not is not problematic. And some have told me, oh, well, John, that's obvious. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, in some sense, caught in the middle between colliding worlds here. And I think for that reason, it doesn't, you, you ask, well, how does it feel? Well, it can feel a bit lonely at times because I spent most of my career in the energy policy community, and that's the community that now has very much embraced life cycle analysis. But uh, I, I just feel this is, um, you know, an unfortunate thing that cropped up where a certain approach, life cycle modeling, kind of took off before it was adequately vetted and validated. And now we're in a situation of having to work through that. Uh, and it's it's going to take time. Uh, I knew that when um, I first began doing the theoretical analysis uh, several years ago that picked it apart, found um, essentially a fatal flaw <laughs> in the assumptions. Uh, you know, I said to myself, oh, boy, this is going to be a rough ride. And, yeah, so it's a rough ride. I sort of braced myself for that. You know, you, you were talking earlier. Um, I want to ask you about the um – the Ford uh, commentary, which really is what led to this podcast, uh, which was not around actually when you published your original uh, paper. So that's what actually led to, to this podcast. And I also want to ask you more about policy setting in the LCA paradigm, if you will. But I want to go back to something that you said about Tim Searchinger, because in my view, as a, um, as an analyst, fuels analyst um, in this space. So in other words, I am not a scientist or an LCA um, expert and do not plan to be ever. So you authored a paper with Tim and Tim Searchinger, in my view, really is the one that really, um, at least from the from the perspective of indirect land use change, was really one of the ones that really exploded it. I mean, there's Michael Wang and there's and there's others who really, you know, put their stamp, um, you know, in in this space. But I I do think of him as someone who really, um, you know, helped to to popularize this kind of um, analysis when looking at. Biofuels. So it's it's interesting, I guess, that you guys. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you've had discussions, philosophical discussions about this issue, but I do think it's kind of ironic. Is you've gone this particular way in your in your scientific um, analysis of this issue, and it seems to me he's gone, um, you know, uh, uh, quite another. Um, do you have any any comment on that, or have you guys ever, ever you know, discussed you know this this particular issue or Anything you want to want to say about that? I just find it kind of ironic. 
we've discussed this on and off. You know, we, we didn't haven't directly collaborated on anything since uh, we both left the Environmental Defense Fund. He left uh, a little before I did. I'd say in many ways, my own work on this was inspired by the questions that Tim Searchinger raised. Uh, again, we both shared skepticism each from our own vantage point, you know, going back many years. Tim has led teams of top uh, scientists, climate scientists, ecologists, land use experts, and modelers to scrutinize uh, what happens when one, you know, the country in this case, takes a lot of our crop harvest and diverts it into making fuel instead of putting it into the feed and food system. Uh, as we know, on a gross basis, you know, around 40% of our corn now goes into biofuel. I think I've, I haven't checked recently the number on the soybeans, but it's on the order of maybe 25%. Quite a lot of the soybean harvest is going into making uh, biodiesel. So that's a pretty uh, huge impact on commodity flows, agricultural commodity flows. So that's what Tim has addressed uh, in a, a series of papers, uh, you know, beginning with his very well-known paper about indirect land use change in 2008. Since then, we've more or less been on parallel tracks. We talk every once in a while, compare notes. I think we're conceptually on the same page, even though we're taking different uh, scientific approaches in, in tackling the issue. In some sense, the concern about indirect land use change, uh, that was on the table before Tim wrote his paper. That's why ISA has this language uh, when it defines the life cycle analysis that the life cycle analysis needs to include indirect effects. Uh, that was written in to ISA by environmentalists, in particular NRDC, I believe, was probably very involved in that, Natural Resources Defense Council. They were big proponents of the RFS. They've been big proponents of the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard. Uh, and, you know, they embraced the life cycle paradigm, but, but felt that it also needed to include indirect effects. At that very same time, um, you know, around 2007, when NYSA was being negotiated, I, as a scientist, realized that, whoa, if the law is going to write indirect effects into it, there's no way that science is going to ever be able to settle the debates because these indirect effects, kind of a domino theory of you divert grains in the United States, uh, that triggers a somewhat higher price in commodity markets, triggers more production other places, and then has this ripple effect that leads to tropical deforestation. You can't measure any of that. And then to handle it, what Tim did, because these effects play out through the future, is in his 2008 paper, he examined the effect of those changes, uh, ripple effects through commodity and land use markets over a 30-year future time horizon. So at this point, you are modeling things that span the globe and extend into the future. You can model it, but it's no longer amenable to core scientific method of checking it against data. We don't have data about how well and to what extent new biomass growth is going to compensate for the loss of biomass you know, that creates large CO2 releases when, say, a forest is cut down. So that is when the light bulb went off in my head saying, whoa, something's wrong here. 
with the life cycle paradigm, if to use it correctly, as you know, became the intent of the law and what scientists like Tim and others were saying, meant modeling the whole world and doing so 30 years into the future, that's a far cry from what we normally do when we regulate. Uh, normally, you know, when we regulate fuels, I mean, we, we've regulated fuels for lots of things for, you know, volatility, we've got the lead out, we're getting the sulfur out. You can take a sample of fuel, you can test how much sulfur is in it. <laughs> That's a clear-cut scientific uh, decision. Now, you can take this, a sample of fuel, say ethanol. Chemically, you can measure how much carbon is in that. That's you know trivial. That's just basic chemistry. But this idea that the carbon intensity uh, based on life cycle analysis somehow depends on a large computer model that models the whole world and does so many years into the future, there's no way you can take that into the lab and say, oh, you got it right or you got it wrong. So that was the light. So in some sense, Tim's work inspired me to take a different route, to not try to do more and more computer modeling, which he's continued to do and pointed out, for instance, the severity of the food versus fuel problem in, in his most recent science article from uh, 2015. I went back to basics and said, okay, something's really the matter here if when we ask the simple question, how does fuel X compare to fuel Y, we have to do these global scenario analyses uh, as opposed to something that we can test and verify. So again, we're, we both have our own separate concerns. I can't you know, speak for him. I have enormous respect for his work. Like I said, in many ways, it inspired mine and did inspire me to go off in a different direction. I want to ask you, now I want to get to the, the Ford commentary and then your response. So that team uh, challenged some of the assertions, as you well know, underlying your team's original analysis, and then you published a response to that, and that happened just this August. So can you talk a bit about the commentary and response? And I just want to note for the record for the listeners, I actually asked Ford to discuss their views. And what I was originally planning to do is one of my web conferences where there's more of a of a dialogue and, and back and forth and um, in a very sort of structured, productive way. In other words, it's not like Fox News or CNN where everybody's talking over each other and you learn nothing um, except how annoyed you are. Uh, so um, this was meant to be sort of more of a, of a structured uh, discussion and they declined, um, just for the record. So I want to note that, and I also want to note that I will link all of the papers so that people can um, access them when I do the uh, as, as part of the podcast post. So um, going back to to John um, to your um, your commentary, their commentary, and your your response. Can you talk about it from your point of view? Their commentary, and then a similar one that that they had published earlier in the year in a, a different journal, really essentially lay on the line the objections that the life cycle community has to my work. The premise of life cycle analysis is that it traces all the effects uh, and then maps them onto estimated emissions through the supply chain of a given product. And so it will take, a, say, corn ethanol, and add up all the emissions uh, that happen 
when the ethanol was produced, and it includes things like the emissions that it takes, you know, to make fertilizer, as well as the emissions, you know, from the tractor fuel and emissions at the biorefinery. And then it compares that to the analogous emissions when you refine gasoline from petroleum. So starting at the oil wells, emissions there, emissions during crude transport, emissions at petroleum refineries, and so on. It's a so-called, you know, wells-to-wheels analysis. So they said that they basically assert, well, this is how you should compare fuels. And with respect to biofuels in particular, they said that they make the standard assumption in, in these life cycle analyses when you're looking at the fuel product as the system, sort of this well-to-wheels supply chain, they say, well, the CO2 emissions at the wheels, at the car, uh, when you burn a biofuel, are automatically balanced by the CO2 that's pulled out of the air when the feedstock, say corn in the case of ethanol, soy in the case of soybeans, is grown. So the, the picture they draw is of that life cycle of the ethanol in isolation from everything else. They isolate it and analyze it. And then they compare that to uh, a life cycle of gasoline, uh, in which case the carbon in the fuel comes from underground as opposed to out of the air, and therefore they count those gasoline-related tailpipe emissions, whereas the life cycle analysis essentially automatically negates them completely. That's the, they, they, they basically assert this is the best way to look at the world. And there's some other, they take that and make some other technical objections that I won't get into. But the crux of the matter is that that life cycle approach is inadvertently comparing apples and oranges. While we say, of course, yeah, well, ethanol is not gasoline. But you have to bring it all back to the real world, not just the world that you model. And if you compare those two things, there's uh, something wrong with the story. They say, well, cropland is not part of the gasoline life cycle, so we're not looking at it when we analyze petroleum gasoline, but cropland is part of the biofuel life cycle, so we count you know, the CO2 from photosynthesis when crops are grown. Well, in the real world, the cropland is there whether or not you're making biofuels. <laughs> and that's the rub. That's where my analysis departs. The comparison they're making with, say, the GREET model and then the modeling system that, say, EPA developed is they're essentially comparing a petroleum-fueled world without land, without productive arable land to a biofuel world that has productive land in it. And so they're, com they're essentially comparing two artificial worlds. What I did in my analysis, you know, again, it goes back to how I took it back to basics several years before in theoretical work, is realize that, well, there's only one real world. The world always has cropland in it. And that cropland is always removing CO2 from the atmosphere, whether or not the harvest is being used for fuel. So that is really the crux of the issue. And there's basically a conceptual disagreement about how to look at the world. I uh, believe I'm right simply because cropland's always there, <laughs> always removing CO2. 
uh, regardless how that harvest is being used. And so when you take the perspective of the atmosphere, you know, if you're looking down, gazing on the sky, looking at CO2 leaving you, uh, being absorbed through photosynthesis, and then CO2 coming back up at you out of tailpipes, when you look at that world, uh, you don't see much difference of the tailpipes, whether the fuel is uh, ethanol or gasoline or diesel or uh, biodiesel, because the combustion CO2 is pretty close to the same, plus or minus a couple percent. So that you don't see any more carbon coming, any less carbon coming at you from the tailpipes. And when you look down in the cropland, the sort of first order, you don't see much change um, depending on how the you know crops are being used. I did count the changes. That was the core of my analysis. As I looked at how cropland takes up more carbon uh, in recent years, partly through yield growth but largely because we've had a, a big expansion of corn production and somewhat of an expansion of soybean production, corn is our most productive crops. So it did take more carbon out of the atmosphere, uh, and that is the basis of that 37% number that I had mentioned earlier in my analysis. But the, the real issue here is that you need to look at the world as it actually is, the cropland is always there whether or not we're making biofuels, always taking carbon out of the air. You have to account for that fact to do a correct analysis. Um, and that's basically what I did. It's different than this life cycle paradigm because I'm not comparing distinct fuel product systems that are a kind of an abstraction from reality. I'm just looking at the world as we find it. So I want to add, go back to your original study uh, for a minute and ask you, because your study focused on, you know, really on first-gen biofuels. So, um, you know, corn ethanol and soy biodiesel, because that's what's still to this day primarily in the marketplace here in, the, in this country, in the United States. So, and, and, and frankly, in, in most parts of the world uh, as well. So what about, so this is going to be a, a several, several part um, question. What about next generation biofuels, you know, n number one? And number two, um, how do you see it with respect to the point or the analysis that some have pointed out, which is, look, okay, we need uh, the first gen uh, so that we can bridge uh, to the second gen? I mean, that's, that point has especially been made in the case of cellulosic ethanol. Uh, so that's my, my second question. And my third question is to really hit you <laughs> is, you know, I mean, but you have government, you know, um, different different agencies, you know, supporting R&D in this area. And, you know, one of the big ones is the Department of Energy. I mean, they've been funding all kinds of different uh, research in the bioenergy and biofuel space. So, I mean, with, you know, under your paradigm or, you know, your analysis and your research, you know, is DOE on, on the right track? Should they be doing other types of R&D? Are they, um, you know, what, what's your response to that? So I know it's a big uh, set of questions, but, um, you know, how do you, you know, what's your view on those? It's basically kind of one question uh, and, you know, the implications of it in the sense of, you know, what about these second-generation fuels? How would they come out in, in my kind of analysis? Even if corn ethanol isn't so great, isn't, isn't it 
still important as a bridge to cellulosic ethanol. And then finally, the Department of Energy, among others, but majorly at the Department of Energy has been doing a lot of R&D investment into these second and even third generation uh, fuels. And, and what does my analysis mean for, for those investments and R&D? Well, to take the first part, because the other parts in some sense hinge on it, I've not analyzed cellulosic ethanol because uh, the spirit of at least of my initial analysis here was to look at what's going on in the real world. And by and large, um, not by and large, but yeah, the, the quantities of cellulosic ethanol being produced remain uh, really uh, very trivial. You know, I know you've been tracking this issue for, for many years and, you know, over the past uh, several years as the RFS ramped up, you know, EPA would write a rule and they would identify the potential for, you know, certain amounts of cellulosic biofuels. Uh, the assumptions would come from filings and uh, estimates tracked by both EPA and DOE uh, about startups. And, uh, you know, you, we'd find a situation where, you know, a rule from several years ago assumed a certain production from a certain startup, and then two years later, that startup is bankrupt. <laughs> so uh, that's happened more than once uh, in terms of the assumptions about the viability of cellulosic ethanol. The gap in the progress here is just astounding. I believe uh, where we're getting some early commercial production of a, of a cellulosic uh, ethanol, it's um, you know corn husk uh, related uh, by a couple of companies, and I think last year, if I recall right, they're kind of at the five million gallon per year level. By comparison, the ISA mandate uh, for this current year was supposed to be 5.5 billion gallons. So, you know, the actual production is a, is a fraction of 1% of what the mandate calls for. To date, most of the cellulosic biofuel qualified under the RFS has actually been some form of biogas. And so, uh, you know, Often that's probably a pretty good fuel from a climate point of view, you know, if you're capturing, you know, something that would have otherwise been emitted as methane or partly as methane, uh, convert, converting it into a, a gaseous fuel that you burn. That's obviously very good for the climate, but um, those are, that's, uh, you know, that's a niche uh, market. It's certainly not at all in the spirit of the law, which was to substitute large volumes of petroleum fuel with some sort of a biofuel. So, you know, the, you, you need a liquid to do that at, at scale, and the liquid cellulosic production has been, you know, trivial compared to what was promised, uh, what was anticipated, and what was funded uh, to the tunes of quite a lot of money uh, over the years, uh, both public and private investment. That being said, we did the kind of analysis uh, that I feel is the correct analysis as, as I've done, what I have been calling ABC, annual basis carbon accounting, which means you're looking at the actual carbon a year at a time. Some of these cellulosic fuels would probably come out okay. They would not come out as well as the computer models, the life cycle models say they come out, but they would you know, be potentially beneficial. The implication is that if you look at this from an economic point of view, cost-benefit analysis, 
if the benefits are lower and the costs are still high, the cost-benefit equation does not look very good. So the bottom line is that these cellulosic fuels not only are, but are likely to remain for the reasonably foreseeable future, a very economically poor way to address CO2 emissions. I'd say outlook for these cellulosic fuels is not very optimistic. Again, I'm not denying that they couldn't be beneficial, but uh, we simply don't even have anywhere near the scale of real-world experience to actually go measure <laughs> how beneficial they turn out to be. And as I said, if, you, if we measure it correctly, uh, they're not going to look uh, as wonderful as they've looked on, on paper. So based on that, unfortunately, you know, I, I think it's, uh, to use a cliche, uh, corn ethanol may be a bridge to nowhere as far as climate protection is concerned. Uh, and uh, if there is a bridge, it would be a very, very long one, and a, a one that is now resting on some pretty shaky foundations. So, uh, unfortunately, I, I do not have an optimistic outlook for the future of the biofuels industry in a world that really cares about climate. It's important to ask, well, what should we be doing instead? Uh, we thought that we needed a lot of biofuels because we knew we weren't going to be able to electrify uh, transportation that quickly, and we're probably not going to be able to fully electrify you know, a lot of larger vehicles or let alone plug-in jet airplanes, although I understand somebody has promised a prototype short-range electric jet. But, you know, again, liquid fuels are the world's largest form of commercial energy. Uh, they emit a lot of carbon. When they're burned, we need to do something about that. If you ask that question just like that, what do we do without presuming biofuels? And then put that together with the key aspect of my theoretical analysis, which is that the climate benefit doesn't come when a biofuel is burned, because after all, the amount of CO2 is essentially the same as that of any other liquid fuel. The benefit comes by increasing how quickly we remove CO2 from the atmosphere, what I was referring to before as the input side. Once you remove CO2 from the atmosphere, at that point, you are as ahead of the game as you're ever going to be with respect to keeping CO2 out of the atmosphere, protecting the atmosphere. Since land, productive land, arable land, growing crops or whatever, is the best mechanism we have as a society right now to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, my analysis actually implies that instead of trying to make biofuels, we should be doing a lot more forest protection, regrowing forests, grassland protection, building up carbon stocks in the atmosphere, uh, in, on land and, and uh, protecting the atmosphere by building up carbon stocks on land rather than taking that land, increasing the pressure on it by putting fuel demands on top of food demands, uh, which ends up you know, releasing carbon from the land as opposed to building it. So in, in short, you know, we should be uh, using what land, good land we have for a lot more reforestation rather than converting it to biofuel production. 
So I was going to actually ask you about this because, as you point out, whole regulatory regimes and systems have been completely built up based on the LCA here in the U.S., in California, um, in the European Union. And, you know, and those systems um, have spawned, I mean, I I can't even count it up. I mean, it's uh, billions of dollars of investment by the oil companies, by biofuel companies, by the automotive companies, and, you know, everything from, you know, powertrain platforms to, you know, like storage and storage and blending. So um, if the LCA is not the, the appropriate paradigm, you know, what would that be as it regards fuels? And it sounds like what you are saying is – you know, forget about, I mean, in, in under your paradigm, you know, and, and in reality, as you see it, you it sounds like you're saying forget about fuels, uh, forget about this regime and just, you know, focus on um, reforestation. Um, but the reality is, you know, and that sounds good. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, a huge fund could be created, you know, just uh uh, by the oil companies and others to actually do that, you know, like it's actually, uh, you know, uh, doable and achievable. But the reality is, is that we have 60 countries plus um, that have or intend to have, you know, a biofuels mandate. And again, you have those country countries or regions that have spawned a, a regulatory regime based on LCA. So it's kind of like, how do we, you know, like that's not going away. You know, people aren't getting really getting rid of mandates. That's going to continue. And in my own analysis, when you look at transport provisions that countries plan or are um, implementing to comply with the transport, uh, their transport uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction commitments, you know, biofuels is the number one policy selected ahead of fuel con- fuel economy standards, ahead of zero emission vehicle uh, standards or mandates. So how do we, you know, operate um, within that uh, framework? Because it's not necessarily dichotomous reforestation is, is going on, but it's not like people are going to dump this, their the regime anytime in, in the near future. That's right. You know, one of the things I do want to point out, though, is I don't think that most of the very large multi-billion dollar investments uh, that have been made in biofuels really hinge on the LCA. You know, what, what, again, take you know, the United States. We now have the world's largest biofuel industry. Uh, the RFS ramp up means we, in short order, exceeded Brazil's uh, longstanding sugarcane ethanol program, which had been world's largest for a while. It was a set of things that did this both here and elsewhere that were, you know, sometimes claimed greenhouse gas reduction, but were not really, that, that, that's not the political basis of why we have so many biofuel mandates. I mean, look, um, I like to point out, you know, the big expansion that happened in ISA in 2007, that bill passed the Senate 86 to 8. Uh, and I don't think that's what was because we had 86 senators concerned about protecting the climate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Most is even too strong a word. Essentially, all of the multi-billion-dollar investments in biofuels that have been leveraged by mandates and by other programs, as you, you know, the oxygenate standard here, incentives of various kinds that pro, that different countries have had over the years, state incentives. The vast majority of that 
was basically oriented to bolstering traditional farm incomes in this country, corn and soybean farmers, you know, the whole Brazilian pro-alcohol program, you know, again, rests on the political power of the sugarcane farmers, the cane farmers. So as you say, uh, these things are not going away because, and the reason is because their basis was never climate protection anyway, okay? <laughs> their basis was ultimately, you know, just the agricultural industry's own, you know, political interest and sway, and that's fine. That's business as u- usual in politics. You know, every year that EPA is going to come out with new volume uh, requirements, it's, it's been a painful, torturous process of, you know, are you going to be greater or lesser? You know, and there's the waivers on the cellulosic. It's a, it's a, it's a tortuous policy. I think what we're seeing, though, is a pullback uh, on the expectations. The European Union has, has already pulled back. The ISA targets, I mean, they're essentially irrelevant now. I mean, come on, 5 million gallons of some kind of corn husk ethanol versus the expectation of 5.5 billion this year. So I think a lot of money has been lost, unfortunately, based on a false paradigm. You know, again, there's been bankruptcies in the advanced biofuel space. You know, biofuels themselves are not going to go away, again, because their foundation was never really about climate protection anyway. I think what this means, though, is that the outlook for this industry to expand both in the United States and globally as much as many people had hoped and had foreseen is changing. I think it's already started to change. And uh, this is not going to be a growth industry as the world becomes more and more concerned about climate. I also want to make sure, you know, when obviously very critical of biofuels from an environmental perspective, I know better than to, you know, never say, I know I should never say never, okay? <laughs> saying that there never will be a role for biofuels as part of the climate solution. What I am saying is that for that to happen, we first better get the modeling and analysis right. We've got it badly wrong, so there's a lot of work to do there. When it's done right, the scale and scope is going to look a lot less ambitious than you know what people thought it was on the basis of the life cycling modeling that was part of the premise for the expansion of ISA. And so it's really uh, you know a question of getting realistic about the extent and timing for biofuel use. The, the real missing link here goes back to, you know, what I said, we need to reforest. The, as the world gets serious about climate, it's going to need to get serious about managing and protecting and, in fact, rebuilding its carbon stocks on land, which is like, put that in plain English, forests, grasslands, wetlands, other lands, especially in the mid-latitudes that store carbon, building soil carbon, as time goes on and we get good at that, as, I, as we need to, not just to mitigate climate change, but to adapt to it because forests are under threat by the changing climate. Look at all the wildfires in the West. So as, as we get better at that and then have a handle on how much carbon can be safely extracted from the landscape, at the same time as technology progresses slowly, we may, many decades down the road, get to a world 
where some form of advanced biofuel makes sense. Uh, but my main point is that this whole idea that somehow the world was going to ramp up biofuel production to an increasing share of transportation and liquid fuel demand over, you know, the uh, basically 15-year period that ISA foresaw from 07 to 2022, that those were unrealistic expectations technologically and very badly grounded in terms of uh, climate protection. And so we, we really need a major reset here and in, in expectations around biofuels. So the last question that I have, and it's, it's more of a sort of a philosophical uh, question. Do you think that, aside from the uh, LCA paradigm, do you think that there has been too much emphasis on um, greenhouse gas reduction in fuels generally, or maybe we can just say transport, at, at the expense of traditional air pollutant reduction. So, you know, in other words, um, how do we achieve both the decarbonization of transport, uh, which is huge, complex, and difficult, and the reduction of uh, air pollutants? I mean, you've seen that they don't necessarily go hand in hand, and I think Dieselgate is a perfect example of a policy gone wrong, where policymakers very well knew, in my view, uh, going into it. Um, you know, they went for the GHG reductions and, you know, everyone knew that NOx uh, could be an issue or NO2 and PM. And they just sort of, um, in my view, chose the, the former um, kind of over the latter. And now, you know, air pollution is really terrible. And now we're talking car bans and all this other sort of thing. So how do how do we achieve both? And what policy, what kind of policy you know, would that really look like? I don't think it's so much that we've overemphasized greenhouse gas reduction at the expense of air quality. I, I think it's more like we've, we've not done a great job on either. And we obviously do need both. You know, in China, a lot of what's driving their push for electrification is urban air quality. You know, so that's a strong driver. Uh, they're concerned about climate. But in that case, you have, um, you know, with their fuel mix, you know, still around 70% coal, you know, the climate benefits of electrification are minimal and, you know, perhaps even absent. Uh, so, uh, but they're very concerned about air quality. Uh, you know, in the case of Dieselgate, you know, you have a situation, I, I remember I was, uh, you know, um, I, I was not involved in the European policy, but I was very involved in the 90s and, you know, the beginnings of U that phase of U.S. climate policy. And I visited Europe when those, what were initially voluntary CO2 standards were being developed and talked to people at, you know, Concawe and the Automakers Association there and European Union offices. And they saw the diesel, you know, that Europe was already much more invested in diesel than we were. There was a strong interest in diesel engines, some of their comparative advantage for them. So that push to dieselization, you know, was, I'd say, politically, and they had historically neglected air quality. And, and now, of course, now that came to a head. Their air quality always lagged ours, and, and now that's caught up with them big time. So these issues are, I, I don't think they're that fundamentally in conflict. I, I, I think one of the ways I, I look at what's going on with the greenhouse gas emissions and transport is 
were in a kind of collective growing pains about our understanding. Uh, when someone like myself, I've been, who've been working on these you know issues, working on energy issues, you know, since the late seventies, comes along, you know, at years of working on an issue after having one at one time embraced LCA and then finds a huge mistake <laughs> uh, that upsets the apple cart. To me, that's a sign of growing pains as we grapple with uh, this new and very daunting challenge around greenhouse gas emissions. So, uh, yeah, and obviously, even though, you know, on, on the air quality side, I mean, Dieselgate, that's really a case, you know, everyone should have known better. There's no excuse for something like that. Look at the bad air quality in lots of regions around the world uh, and compare that to how we've so successfully cleaned up air pollution in many parts of this country. I mean, we're not out of the woods, but I mean, just compared to when someone like myself was growing up, you know, with cars that had no catalytic converters on them, that gas fumes were everywhere, the technology to do a much better job in reducing air pollution from tailpipes does exist. And it's the costs have been learned down. I mean, we have, you know, the, the, the acronym soup of California standards, partial zero emission vehicles, super ultra low emission vehicles. We know how to do that. The fact that it's not being done in Europe and not being done in other cities is really a political failure. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, due to an overemphasis on greenhouse gas emissions. I think it's just due to, you know, politics not being attentive to public health. I agree with that. All right. Uh, We will end it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank John so much for being on the show today, for being so open to my very probing and multi-part questions. (laughs) It was really great to, uh, to have you and to talk with you about these issues. Thank you for your interest. I'm very honored to be your guest. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm honored that you're honored. Please do us a favor today before you go. Uh, Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking in iTunes and, more importantly, keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and also benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on fuels issues, especially future fuels issues, head over to my website and sign up for my free newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. And thanks again. <music> <laughs>